Welcome back to NC Realtors Redefined, the NC Realtors podcast. On this episode, from our Mobile Monday series on Facebook, NC Realtors General Counsel Will Martin shares this year's top five legal hotline questions. But first... Don't waste your time stressing over forms or legal questions. NC Realtors have free unlimited access to the NC Realtors Legal Hotline. Want answers to your questions? Email legalhotline at ncrealtors.org. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, Welcome. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Will Martin. I'm legal counsel for the North Carolina Realtors and I've been asked to speak on the topic of the top five questions that we've gotten on the legal hotline uh, this year. That's really challenging to create a list like that because we get a lot of questions on a lot of different topics uh, on the legal hotline, so it's hard to uh, come up with a list of the top five questions uh, that we get, which is my topic for today. The five questions I've selected aren't necessarily the most common questions, the five most common questions we've gotten on the hotline, but they have all been common calls that are all representative of the most common types of questions that we've gotten. So, for example, it would be an understatement to say that the nature of the questions we've gotten this past year has been greatly influenced by the existence of a global pandemic which has, among other things, caused a demand for housing that has far exceeded supply in many areas of the state. Uh, This has in turn resulted in unprecedented competition for relatively few properties. And so the first three questions on my list are in one way or another uh, reflective of this state of affairs. The fourth question addresses a change in a real estate commission rule And the fifth question addresses an issue we've recently been hearing about that affects evictions or summary ejectments. I put those two questions on the list in part because questions about real estate commission rules and questions about landlord tenant law and property management are two of the five biggest categories of questions we've gotten on the hotline this year. Uh, As you may know, My two law partners and I take turns writing a weekly Q&A that's distributed every Monday in an email from the NC Realtors called the Realtor Rundown. We base those Q&As primarily on questions we get on the hotline. So not surprisingly, we've written a QA and a or two relating to each of the five questions I'm going to go over today. Uh, I've also written an article for the next issue of Insight Magazine, which is the NC Realtors Magazine on the top questions of 2021 that includes these five questions and several more on topics such as escalation clauses and the clear cooperation policy. Uh, Also, please don't hesitate to call or email uh, Bill, John, and me with your questions on the hotline. Uh, The number to call is 336-294-1415. You can also send us an email. That address is legalhotline at ncrealtors.org. 
Okay, on to the first question. Is it okay to use a non-standard addendum, for example, an appraisal addendum with the offer to purchase and contract? We've gotten a lot of questions this past year relating to a variety of non-standard addenda that buyers are including with their offers in an attempt to make their stand out from all the rest. The short answer to the question is yes, non-standard addenda can be used with the offer to purchase and contract, provided you follow a few guidelines. Any non-standard addendum should be drafted by a North Carolina real estate attorney and not just any attorney, uh, but one who has a good understanding of how the offer to purchase and contract works. You know, just because you see somebody that has the word attorney after their name really doesn't mean that they have any idea how that offer to purchase works. And I would submit that an attorney who understands how the offer to purchase works uh, will understand better how an addendum to the offer to purchase affects the addendum and how it should be worded. Uh, a broker who recommends the use of such an addendum should also have a working understanding of what the addendum says and how it will affect the rights of the parties to the contract. And the broker should encourage their client to consult with a North Carolina real estate attorney if they have any questions. How about the listing agent? Uh, a listing agent receiving an offer with a non-standard addendum must deliver it to their seller client and discuss it with them. And they should also encourage their client to consult with a North Carolina real estate attorney if they have any questions. Now the question mentions an appraisal addendum in particular, and that's because that's the type of non-standard addendum we've gotten the most questions about on the hotline. Uh, as for our take on appraisal addenda, most of the ones we've seen are essentially nothing more than a promise by the buyer to purchase the property, even if the appraisal is low. And our view is that an addendum of that sort is really of questionable value from a legal perspective for several reasons. Number one, the buyer still has the right to terminate the contract for any reason or no reason during the due diligence period. Number two, after the due diligence period is over, the contract doesn't give the buyer the right to terminate if the appraisal is low. So the buyer's promise to buy the property, even if the appraisal is low, really doesn't add anything. Number three, in addition, if the buyer walks away anyway, the seller's remedies aren't any different than they are without an appraisal addendum, not unless the remedies section in Form 2T is amended. Uh, the seller gets to keep any due diligence fee and would be entitled to any earnest money deposit, and that's it. Okay, moving on to the second question. What are the duties of a listing broker whose seller tells them that the seller has decided not to sell their property after it has gone under contract? Well, this is not a new question, but we're getting it more often because in this market, some sellers want to back out of contracts because they can't find a place to move to. Uh, others think they can get more money for their house by selling it to someone else. So assuming the property was put under contract using Form 2T, the seller really doesn't have a right to unilaterally terminate absent a breach of contract by the buyer. So what should the listing agent do if their seller tells them that they're not going to go through with it? Well, several things. 
One, they should advise the seller that if the seller refuses to perform, the buyer would have the right to terminate the contract and seek recovery of all costs associated with the seller's breach, including but not necessarily limited to the earnest money deposit, due diligence fee, and due diligence costs. The seller should also be advised that the buyer may have the right to force the seller to perform the contract, which is known as the remedy of specific performance. Uh, the listing agent should strongly encourage the seller to consult with an attorney. They should also advise the seller that according to the terms of the exclusive right to sell listing agreement, the listing firm's fee was earned when the property went under contract and it will become due and payable if the seller breaches the contract. In addition, if the listing agent concludes that it's likely the seller will not perform the contract, it would be a material fact that the listing agent would at some point be required to disclose to the buyer agent or the buyer. Third question. May a broker represent two buyers who are interested in making offers on the same property? This is not a new question either, but it's coming up more often now because due to low inventory, a lot of buyers are competing for the same properties. The answer to the question is yes, a broker can represent two buyers who are interested in the same property, but we think it needs to be done very carefully and with an understanding that there is some risk in doing so. The broker should disclose to both buyers that the broker represents two buyers who are interested in the same property and remind them that paragraph five of the exclusive buyer agency agreement, assuming that was the agency agreement that was signed, specifically provides that the firm may represent other buyers interested in the same or similar properties and that the buyer consented to such representation. The broker should assure them both that the broker will make every reasonable effort to represent them both in a balanced and fair manner, including providing them both with the same information about the property. Importantly, the broker should make it clear that under the circumstances, the broker will not be able to give either buyer specific advice on what terms to include in any offer they may choose to make. It's not dual agency in a technical sense, but in our view, a broker's role changes that is, in, that is in some way similar to the role of a dual agent. Okay, moving on to question number four. Can a broker whose license is not on provisional status be paid a commission by someone other than a broker in charge? This is an old question, but it's got a new answer. The new answer to the question is no. In the past, a so-called full broker, that's one whose license is not on provisional status, could receive a commission directly with the consent of his or her firm. However, that changed when Real Estate Commission Rule 58A.0120 went into effect this past July 1st. According to the rule, a broker may only receive a commission or referral fee from their current BIC or under certain circumstances, from a former BIC. Uh, for example, if a broker puts a property under contract while they are affiliated with firm A and the property closes after the broker has left firm A and joined firm B, 
and assuming the broker is entitled to be paid a commission under the terms of the independent contractor agreement they had with firm A, we think it would be permissible for the BIC of firm A to pay the commission directly to the broker rather than paying it to firm B. That would be permitted by the rule. Not mandatory, but permitted. Okay, question number five. This is the property management question. Must a broker who is managing a rental property demand that the tenant surrender possession of the property before filing an eviction action against the tenant? I got to tell you, we got way more questions about the state and federal eviction moratoria that were in place for much of this year. But thank goodness they're no longer in effect and hopefully we won't have to deal with them again. I've included this question for two reasons. One, as I mentioned above, landlord, tenant and property management questions make up one of the largest categories of questions we get on the hotline. And two, we have received reports recently of several summary ejectment cases that were dismissed because the property manager did not demand possession before filing the case. The answer to the question is yes, a property manager must first demand that the tenant surrender possession of the property before filing an eviction action against the tenant. There's a state statute, GS 42-26, that specifically provides that a tenant who continues in possession of the leased premises without the permission of the landlord may be removed from the premises in certain circumstances, quote, after demand is made for its surrender, end of quote. In addition, the residential rental contract, Form 410-T, states that if the landlord terminates the lease or terminates the tenant's right of possession without terminating the lease, the landlord, quote, shall be immediately entitled to possession of the premises and the tenant shall peacefully surrender possession of the premises to the landlord immediately upon landlord's demand. So consistent with the statute, the lease requires that the landlord actually demand possession. Because of this requirement in the lease and because of the language of the statute, it is crucial for property managers to provide tenants with a written demand for possession before filing a summary ejectment action. There is not a standard form for this, at least not at the present time, but I'm going to be meeting with a group of NC Realtor PMD members shortly after the beginning of the year to discuss possible changes and additions to the property management forms. And I'm sure this issue will be on the agenda. Uh, we recommend that a demand for possession be combined with a notice that the tenant has either terminated the lease or terminated the tenant's right of possession. Okay, now that's the end of my prepared comments. If you have questions, I'll remind you that you can always call us or email us on the legal hotline. We're open for business any weekday that the NC Realtors offices are open for business. Thank you for your attention. I hope this was helpful. To get exclusive NC Realtors content, join the NC Realtors Mobile Mondays group on Facebook. Be sure to catch up on every episode of NC Realtors Redefined by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. 